Now, some people have said that if the Bible were a ring, that Romans would be the jewel. And if Romans is the jewel, that Romans chapter 8 would be the sparkle. And the text this morning, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8 and going through verse 39, I think is the gleam in the sparkle. (laughs) This whole passage of Scripture is an amazing, amazing passage. And Romans 8 does indeed take us to the pinnacle of what it is to live in the power of the Spirit of God, to live in His life, to have His Spirit in us, and all that that entails, all that is involved in that. And the last couple of weeks, we have been considering some of the grand promises that are ours because of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. And Paul comes to this 31st verse of the 8th chapter, and he asks a question. What then shall we say? to these things. And I want to ask you a question this morning as you consider that. What things is Paul talking about? What shall we say to these things? What things? The things he's just immediately been talking about? What's involved in, in that? These things. What shall we say? And I really believe that this end of chapter 8 is like a a summary statement. We're not through with the book by any means, but we're right in the middle and we've come to a summation of all that Paul has to say about our life through Jesus Christ, our, our salvation, our sanctification, the power of the Holy Spirit. Looking back over the summary of all that we've considered thus far, I think Paul is taking us all the way back to the beginning. You remember after he says some preliminary things in chapter 1 and introduces himself, he comes to his thesis statement. Now those of you that are writing papers for school or whatever, you know what a thesis statement is. It's, it's, the, it's the brief statement you give that the whole paper is going to be about. It's the It's the forecasting, the foreshadowing of all that you're going to talk about. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is in the gospel, is a righteousness of God revealed From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And and, and he says in that, this good news that I'm going to explain to you is the good news that God has a gift for you. And it's a gift of righteousness that will bring you into right standing with God and will sustain you by faith against all opposition. And then Paul begins to explain why we need that. And 
You, you recall as we studied the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3 that Paul brings us to the awareness that everyone is lost without Jesus Christ. Whether you're a moralist, whether you're a good law-abiding Jew as much as you can, whether you're a total pagan, everyone without Jesus Christ is lost. We're in a hopeless condition of sin and we have sinned against a holy God who will judge that sin, and the condemnation is upon all of us. The soul that sins will die. And then Paul turns a wonderful corner, and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, we have. But God, through Jesus Christ, has given us a righteousness has cleansed us with his blood, has freed us from our sin. And so he begins to explain the message of salvation, the good news, that the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful to cleanse us from all sin. And all sin, past, present, and future, is under the blood of Jesus Christ. We have a huge problem, but we have a grand solution. And that's in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing we can do to earn this. There's nothing we can do to make up the deficit. Friends, we stand without Christ polluted before a holy God and no amount of dilution, no amount of effort, no amount of, of self-abasement, no amount of work, no amount of confession, no amount of contrition can... can cleanse that sin but by faith if we believe that Jesus Christ sacrifice on the cross is sufficient atonement for my sin God welcomes me into his presence and says on the basis of the shed blood of my son I am willing to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness but Paul doesn't stop there. He says God doesn't just clean us up and then kind of stand us back on our feet and say, now try again. God knows that we're going to fail. God knows that we don't have strength in ourselves to live Christ-centered lives. He knows that we're going to continue after the pattern of sinfulness unless there's more answer. And he says not only is the blood of Jesus sufficient to cleanse us from sin history, but the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to break sin's power. So no longer do we have to be in bondage to the law of sin and death. No longer do we have to be dragged down by the base and sin nature that pulls us into the dust. But God enables us in Jesus Christ to be cleansed and to be empowered, to be lifted above. And he says on the basis of that, Come to me and dedicate your bodies. Give me your instruments, your eyes and ears and mind and heart and your hands and feet. Devote yourself to me and let me fill you with my spirit. Give me your members as instruments of righteousness and I will fill you and empower you. And in that process, Jesus Christ through his cross, in our, as we identify in his death, this is, this is mysterious stuff, I admit, but God says it's true in the spiritual realm. We have been freed from the law. 
We don't have an external uh, set of regulations imposed upon us that we have to strive to keep, but we have the Holy Spirit in us to live through us. We don't have to strive to attain righteousness under the law because we have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to produce obedience to his very urgings. You know, we have the problem that we're often ignorant of the character of God, but the truth of the matter is if you were totally living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, you would never need... I want to be careful here, because there's a big if in here. But the Holy Spirit of God will guide you entirely without the law to always do the right thing. If you could be so tuned to him, he would always warn you when you're about to step out of the character of God. And he will always prompt you in ways consistent with the character of God. It comes from the Holy Spirit living in our heart. The scripture is there to enlighten our minds and in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to bring us understanding. But we no longer read the Bible for the purpose of trying to keep it. But we read the Bible to understand what the Holy Spirit is prompting within our heart. Because he, in harmony with what he has written, drives from within the righteous character of God. So that we are free in him. And, and, and as Paul explains all of this, he comes to that marvelous section in Romans 8. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk after the flesh, but walk after the Spirit. And then he begins in that eighth chapter to talk about what life in the Spirit is like. And then two weeks ago, we, we considered the passage where he says, in beginning in verse 18, For I consider that the trials and troubles and problems of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. Paul says, well, there's a great contrast. We're going through difficulties. We're having problems. Yes, we are. But you can't even talk about them in the same breath with the glory that God has in store for us. He paints this marvelous picture of where we're going. He says, keep that vision in your mind. All creation is yearning and groaning for the day when we can see Jesus Christ and be with him. Man, what a future. But he doesn't just leave us there with, with, with the future in our vision, he says. And the Holy Spirit also helps us in the moment. To be in trouble and to see a future is a marvelous encouragement. But to be in trouble and to have momentary, present help, the Holy Spirit, he says, will pray through us. He who lives within us knows our hearts, intercedes to God the Father on the basis of the will of God perfectly in our situation. We have an advocate, a helper, one called to our side to assist us. And then Paul says we live with the assurance that nothing that happens in this life is wasted. Nothing is, is, is of no value because every circumstance, even our own failures, even our own sin, God can, can work together for good to those who love him. It's amazing. 
He prays for us. He works in our situation. He promises that nothing will overtake us that will be to our undoing. But he will always move it together in a way that will bring us closer to the goal. And then he says, not only does God have this glorious future for the church and the wedding feast when we can sit down with the bride and and the bridegroom and the Lord Jesus Christ and be together forever in his family. Not only is God bringing the church to this glorious future, but God has a future for you. He has your name in his heart. He is determined to make you look like and reflect and and demonstrate the image and character of Jesus Christ. He will conform you to the image of His Son. Man, Paul gives us this great picture. Then he asks the question, what shall we say to these things? You know, when you think about it, what can you say? Isn't that amazing? What shall we say? And he comes out with this statement, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, there's there's some really cool things about that phrase, that response that Paul gives to his own question. Pardon? Yeah, yeah. Do you know there's no verbs in that sentence in the original language? I think it's more dramatic the way it's actually written. God for us. Who against us? You know, God for us. You know, if I were to say to you this morning, you know God loves you, uh, probably everybody in this room would say, I know that. We have it in our mind. We've been taught it. Probably the first memory verse you ever learned. I learned it in beginner Sunday school. I was about two. You know, God is love. <laughs> right out of 1 John chapter 4. God is love. That's a simple memory verse. And I learned it when I was a very small child. You probably all know those verses. You can just quote them. But do you believe it this morning? Do you know that God loves you? Yes, you go. Okay, he gives you breath. Let me ask you another question. Do you know that God likes you? Ah, sometimes. <laughs> you know, that's we we have a hard time with that, don't we? You know, well, I I, I know God helps me. You know, I know he's I know I can talk to him and I can pray, but Oh, man, I mess up so much. He's got to be ticked with me about two-thirds of the time. You know, we just have all this stuff going on in our minds. When Paul says, God for us, the, the, the preposition in the Greek is not the, the normal preposition for for. It, it's, it's a preposition that means... Uh, God is on our behalf. God is surrounding us. God is with us in the sense that he loves us and he wants to to bless us. He likes us. Isn't that amazing? God likes you. He likes you. He wants you to succeed. 
He wants you to be blessed. He's for you. You know, if you think about a great coach, I don't mean a coach that's interested in winning uh, the trophy for himself, but the coach that wants to see the, the athlete succeed for their own sake. They see potential in a person, and everything they do is to develop that person to the greatest potential. You know, and, and those coaches stand out. They're great coaches to the individuals. And people love, love people like that in life. Man, they, you know they're for you. They want you to succeed. They want you to be your best. They want you to achieve all that you can accomplish. They're really on your side. God likes me. God loves me. God is for me. If God for me, who? Who can be against me? I mean, think about it. I don't care how big the opposition stacks up. All you have to do is add God to the equation. And there's no comparison. Who can stand before his presence? Who can oppose him? You know, I'm standing there, and here's God behind me, standing with me. Who can oppose me? Who can come against me? Who can defeat me? Paul wants to make sure we understand this. And so he lays out very logically this statement. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, I don't know if you've memorized that verse, but that's kind of a mouthful, you know, how shall he not also with him freely give? You know, we we get into that, but Paul is drawing this superlative comparison. He wants to make sure we get it. It's kind of like Ephesians chapter 1, when he prays, He's praying for the Ephesians, and he says, I want, uh, there's three things I want you to know. I want you to know the hope of his calling. I want you to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And I want you to know the surpassing greatness of God's power toward you, toward us. I want you to understand his power. And then he says, let me talk about this power for a minute. This is the power that God demonstrated when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, do you know how much power that took? When, when Paul brings that image to mind, he says, when I, when I say I'm praying that you'll understand the power of God, this is the power that God demonstrated in the resurrection. There were two things in all of eternity that the devil wanted to make sure never happened. The first thing he wanted to be sure never happened was that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But barring that, the next thing that he had to prevent if he had any chance of winning was to keep him in the grave. If he couldn't keep him off the cross, he wanted to keep him in the grave. And there you have it. On that day, I have, I have jokingly said in preaching through the book of Ephesians, and that's at the end of chapter 1, verse part of chapter 2, and Colossians chapter 1 also, 
I have, I have jokingly said that probably no one was tempted on Resurrection Sunday, the first Sunday uh, that Jesus rose out of the grave, because all the demons of hell and Satan himself and every wicked angel and all the evil powers that he could muster were in one place. They were hovering over the tomb. They wanted to keep Jesus in the grave. They definitely wanted to hold him down. Because if he got out of that grave, they were done. It might be another 2,000 years, but it was only a matter of time. They were done, and they knew it. And the Bible says in, in Colossians, Paul says that he rose up triumphantly through them, didn't even slow down, just made public display of them, rose up in, into the presence of God. He, he rose dramatically. Now, 40 days later, he rose in the presence of his disciples, but, but he had an immediate ascension as he led captivity captive. I was reminiscing just last night. Uh, we were sharing some time last evening with Herb and Rita, and we were talking about different art museums, and I recall going to the National Museum of Art in Washington, D.C., and, and seeing a painting that has just stuck with me ever since the time that I looked at it. It's a huge painting. It's probably uh, six or seven feet tall and four or five feet wide, and it's a painting of Jesus coming out of the tomb. And the images of the garden tomb there in a cave, and, and there was a rock slab that covered it. And the scene is dark and brooding. The, the night is, is still dark, and the colors are the, the dark, earthy tones, and it's this kind of brooding color all around it. But right where the tomb is, the slab has been pushed down. And light is coming from the tomb. And Jesus is coming out of the tomb radiant like a mighty conqueror. And behind him, he, he has his hand back and he's pulling with him a whole crowd of Old Testament saints who have gone before and who are being liberated to go into the presence of the Father. And the slab of the tomb it has been smashed to the ground, but underneath it are all the demons. And they're in agony, wailing, because this stone has crushed them. And Jesus is leading in triumph this great army of Old Testament saints coming out of the grave into the presence of the Father. It's a beautiful image. Friends, the very best Satan could produce could not even retard the resurrection couldn't even slow it down. Isn't that amazing? And so Paul now says, here's this other comparison, this superlative comparison. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. This is the best God has to give. This is the best he has to give. How shall he not also with him freely give us everything else? We're heirs to the kingdom. We have the keys. Nothing will be withheld from the children of God because he's already given them his best. We hold the keys to the kingdom. <coughs> you know? 
Stephen comes over to see us. He's moved out as a wife, a baby, another house. I mentioned this before. He, he still has the combination. He shows up in my kitchen. He doesn't knock. He doesn't call. He just shows up. I look up, and there he is in the kitchen sometimes. That's the way we come in, you know. He has the keys. That's home even though he has his own home. He's my heir. He belongs there. God has given us Jesus Christ. He's given us his best. How shall he not also with him freely give us everything else? What is he going to hold back when he's already given you the best? What can he keep? There's nothing he will withhold if we need it. Because he's already given us Jesus Christ. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Oh, listen, friends, what's the biggest problem you have as a Christian? Don't you, don't you have those nagging accusations? You're not good enough. Look how rotten you are. Look what you did. The other. You can't pray. You just did this. You, you have all this kind of stuff coming at you. You're not worthy. You can't serve. What, what's, what's, you know, we have all of this coming at us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You know, Satan can say, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. I, I used to teach people when, when they were brand new in Christ and I was discipling them, I'd say, you know what, you're going to get beat up. You are going to get beat up. The devil's going to point out all kind of stuff. He's going to accuse you. And you know what the problems with his accusations are? A lot of times they're right, they're true. <laughs> you know, He says, you did this, and I, I did. I did. You said that. I can't believe that you said such a horrible thing to them. I can't either now that you mention it. You know, a lot of times he's right. But what do you do? Grovel in the dirt? That won't help. That only puts you further down. More prone. Most believers... You know, the devil comes at them and accuses them, begins to pound them and hound them, and, and they get all these accusations, and they say, oh, man, I'm horrible. I've got I to work harder. I've got to do something to, to make God think I'm okay. I've I got to show him that I love him. I, I, I'm not going to talk to him for a while. I'm just going to get my act together. Who are you kidding? You're down there in the first place because you can't get your act together. What, what do you think you're going to do now? You, know, you can't improve yourself. The only thing you can do is come back to, to just where you were when you got saved. You come right back to the throne and you say, God, I'm a mess. You know, I am a mess. I'm, I'm in the mud again, and you've got to pick me up. And when the devil comes at you like that, what do you do? You point to the blood. You point to the cross. Yes, that's true of me, but Jesus... Jesus paid the price. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus cleansed my life. I am 
pure and whiter than the driven snow in front of Almighty God because I am forgiven. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? He's the one who justifies. You know, you, you come to the judge and the, the prosecuting attorney presents the charges and before the defense attorney can even stand up, the judge says, case dismissed. I've paid the fine. I've settled the problem. The judge! Who's going to oppose the judge? He's the one who justifies. Who can bring a complaint against God's chosen ones? Who can file an argument? Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died. Yes, who is risen again, and whoever lives to make intercession. You know, Satan can bring all, other people can bring all the accusations, other people can complain about you and gripe, and you can feel so miserable, and you go into the presence of God, and Jesus says, what are you, what are you frustrated about? I paid the price, and I'm praying for you. I'm on your side. I'm loving you. I know your frame. I know that you're but dust. I know you're a jar of clay, but I've got my spirit in you. I love you. I'm praying for you. Who can come against that? This is amazing. And then Paul takes us to the next level. As if that weren't enough, Paul takes us to the next level. What can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? Ever considered that? What can take you out of his favor? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Tribulation. What is tribulation? Anything that comes in life, life's trials, life's troubles, life's difficulties. One of the families in the 8 o'clock service asked for prayer for their daughter. They're phasing out her entire department. She's losing her job. We have people in our church who've already lost their jobs. We have other people whose jobs are just virtually not working. We, we have all kinds of folks that are having troubles, tri- tribulation. Sicknesses, serious diseases, things that lay you low, tribulation. Relationship issues with families, within families, tearing families apart, tribulation. You know? And 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 I'll tell you the truth, in marriages and in families and in parent-child relationships, there are no perfect people. But it only takes one to break up a marriage. It only takes one to break up a family. It only takes one to dissolve a relationship. Both people, no one can say I'm totally innocent. I have never done anything wrong in this relationship. No one can say that. But sometimes we are the victim of the refusal of another person to meet us halfway, to to come across the gulf, to, to say, you know what? I've sinned too. I want to make this right. I want healing. 
Sometimes people won't do that. What do you do? You, have, you suffer because they won't play. And if you pick up your marbles and put them in the bag and head home, wherever that is, and you won't play, there's nothing anybody else can do. Tribulation. And that brings distress. Because when you're going through tribulation, you have distress. Paul's not making light of our trouble. He knows that we have trouble. But he says it will not separate you from the love of Christ. Aren't you glad for that? You know, no matter what happens, it will not separate you from the love of Christ. Everybody in the world. You remember when Jesus had said to the multitudes, you know, that group that he fed them one day and the next day they're following him around, and, you know, and they say, Oh, Lord, we want you to come be our king, basically. And he says, you know what? You don't want me to be your king. You want me to be your grocer. You want me to just keep feeding you. He says, I know what you're about. So he says, I tell you what, let me, let me put it in terms you can understand. Well, they didn't understand it at all, but he put it down at their level. He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in yourself. You, it's not my food you need, it's me that you need. And they, they were horrified. And they left him. And you, you remember what he said to his disciples? He turned to his closest friends and said, Are you going to? To me, that's one of the saddest verses in the scripture. When the Son of God turns to his dearest friends and asks the question, Are you leaving too? Sometimes in life, everyone deserts us. Sometimes we feel like there's no one on the planet that can connect with us. We're misunderstood. We're falsely accused. People who are the answer people, you know? You met some of those? They're the ones with the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and the gift of prophecy. I'm being facetious. But, but they come to you and they say, this is what God wants you to do. And you say, Man, that's not even close. No one gets it. You're all alone. Distress. What will separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. He is always there. He understands perfectly. He will never leave you or forsake you. Persecution. Listen, when you're persecuted, there is a special intimacy with Jesus. Paul said that I might make up in my body the sufferings that were lacking in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was not saying that Jesus did not suffer adequately. But what he's saying is there's this whole body of Christ growing throughout the world and there will be more suffering before the wedding feast. And he says, I'm glad to be able to make it up. Some of that in my body. It's a privilege for me to suffer because I'm really close to Jesus. In fact, in, in Philippians, he says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Isn't that amazing? I want to be with Jesus in persecution. Now, Paul was not a masochist. He wasn't out looking for trouble. <clears throat> but it did find him. And when it finds you, what do you do? I can be intimate with Jesus. He went through this, I'm going through this. It doesn't separate, it brings us closer. 
And then Paul says, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. You know, this is the tough part of the sermon, okay? But it doesn't last very long. But this is the hard part. We don't like those words. We don't want those to be a part of our life. Famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. I didn't think I was supposed to have any of that if God loved me. Friends, you don't understand the world. And you don't understand our place in it. We are here to manifest the glory of God in the midst of a troubled, black, ugly, sin-sick world. And sometimes we are a part of the overflow of that sordid, rotten business. And our lives are touched by it. And God still wants a light shining in a dark place. I was looking through a magazine the other week, and there was an article in there on photojournalism. And in the article, there was an image that was used. It, the, the purpose of the image in the article was to point out how much impact a picture can have in, in, in painting a political or a, a social human problem. Well, it, it, did, it did it. I forgot all about the article, and I got absorbed in the picture. Because someone had taken a picture in a village in North Africa. And what I noticed in the village was the people were naked. They didn't have any clothes. They were also starving to death. Their bones showed through their skin. Their shoulders, bony shoulders, and caved-in areas, and ribs showing, and the typical little pot belly of malnourishment. And then skin and bones, and knobby knees. And then I looked, in the foreground was an, was an old man, but he may have been 40 years old. But because of the, the terrible conditions, he looked like he was in his 70s or 80s. And he's in the foreground, and there are some children in the background. And then I realized there's no grass here, it's just dirt. And I didn't see any huts, I didn't see any housing. There was a little smoldering fire off in the distance. And there was this village. There's no grass. There's no housing. There's no clothes. There's horrible malnutrition and suffering. And the most odd thought struck me. I'm looking at this situation, trying to imagine what it would be like to live there, and I realize I'm holding a magazine, and this man has nothing to read. Now, now you might think, well, did you lose your mind? He didn't have anything to eat. But he has nothing to read. He has nothing to do. There's no work. There's no crop to tend. There's no book to read. There's no video game to play some some of you say i'm bored well how would you how would you feel if you 
could not even go somewhere to do something because there's nothing within walking distance to do, not even work. Go make your bed, clean your room. I don't have a room. I don't have a bed. Go wash your clothes. I don't have any clothes. I know that brothers and sisters in Christ in Somalia have lived like that in North Africa. I know they have. Children of the living God. You see, and to our minds, it's like, I'm a Christian. That should never happen. Friends, this world is a tough place. This is a rotten place. And our hope in Jesus Christ is not limited to this transitory passing moment it is vested in eternity and in the genocide and the murder that was going on among believers in Somalia when the the marauding conquering bands would come in with swords and slice open the bodies and cut open pregnant women and and slaughter the, the whole village how do, you, how do you make sense of that? Huh. God says, my children will be dressed in robes of white, ushered into my presence, welcomed into my kingdom, spend eternity with me and all the saints of God. And that guy swinging that sword may be riding on a horse for this moment, but he's going to die and go to hell and burn forever in the lake of fire. Get your perspective straight. Get your perspective straight. We're blessed, friends. We're blessed. We don't know how blessed we are. I know we have trouble. I'm not minimizing that. But no matter where you are, no matter whether you're here this morning, no matter whether you're in Somalia with nothing, if you know Jesus Christ, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword cannot separate you from the love of God. And He is with you. And He is in you. And When you breathe your last, whether it is in the night or in violence, when you breathe your last, you will open your eyes and suck in celestial air and breathe in the glory of the sight of Jesus in the heavenly Jerusalem. How can we ask for greater security? We have to somehow balance this, friends. We have to balance it. Uh, you know, that, that's my greatest struggle sometimes, not only in my own life, but going in as, as a pastor into a heart-wrenching situation to keep the perspective. To keep the perspective. God is on the throne, and nothing can separate me from his love. As it is written, we are put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Talk, talk to the, you know, talk to the, the, listen to the testimony of the martyrs. Talk to people who have suffered for Jesus Christ. We overwhelmingly conquer. Not just a small victory. We overwhelmingly conquer. Talk to Darlene Diebler Rose and her story of being in a Japanese prison camp during the, the latter part of World War II and ended up in solitary confinement and all the things that happened to her, and yet guards were impressed for Jesus Christ because of her spirit. They could break her health, they could break her body, they could feed her thin gruel once a day, for sustenance, but they could not break her spirit because we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus Christ. We are victors in him. And if we wear the martyr's crown, we are never separated from our God for an instant. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life it's interesting to me that he puts it in that order, isn't it? Neither death nor life. Sometimes it's easier to die than live. But neither one can separate us from the love of God. Not angels, principalities, things present to come, nor powers. He's talking here about wicked angels, demons, the powers of darkness. Cannot separate us from the love of God. Nothing can keep us from the love of God. Not things present, not things to come. You will never face anything that can separate you from the love of God. When you think it's gotten as bad as it can get, and it gets just got worse, nothing can separate you from God's love. He will never leave your side. He will never stop interceding. He will never stop praying. He will never stop loving. You will never be out of His tender care. He will sustain you. Not height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. What is a created thing? It's everything but God. Name it. Can't separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know this morning that God loves you? Do you know that he likes you? Do you know that he's on your side? Do you know that he's standing with you? Do you know that he'll see you through? Do you know that he'll give you songs in the night? Do you know that he'll give you peace when all around you is troubled? Do you know that you can find joy in him when the only thing outside him is sorrow? Do you know the intimacy of Jesus in the depths of your crisis? Do you know that he is with you? And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. Praise God. Be encouraged, friends. This is not just platitudes. Be encouraged. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And whatever you're facing today, it's only for a moment. It's only a little while. 
it will pass. But Jesus Christ will never leave you. And you'll never be alone. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you to encourage people here this morning. Lord, there are people here in deep water. They're in trouble. They're hurting. There's people grieving. There's people grieving broken relationships. There's people losing the things that they have so much appreciated. There's people that don't know what tomorrow holds. Right in this room, there are people going through deep water. Oh God, make yourself known. Pour out your power. Show your love. Encourage them. If God is for us, who can be against us? Thank you. Amen.